This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. You're listening to In the Workplace on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again are Professor Peter Capelli and Dan O'Mara. Folks, welcome back. I'm Peter Capelli, Professor of Management here at the Wharton School. Dan O'Mara is at the spa. We are still trying to figure out which spa treatment he's having done this week. We'll get back to you as soon as we find out. But it's a pleasure to have Yvonne Baranke with us, Professor of Management, Professor of Business Economics here at the Wharton School. And in this half hour of the show, we're going to be talking about something that has come up a lot over the last couple of years or so because it's a big issue in society, and that is what's happening to women in the workplace And uh, obviously the reason this is a big issue is because there have been a lot of problems, but there's also a lot of progress. So if you look at women working, opportunities for working improve greatly. If you look at wages relative to men, big gap, but the gap has been narrowing. Um, And there are changes that stem from working having to do with delayed marriage, for example, fewer children, all kinds of things that affect women, but they also affect families and the society as a whole. But one of the most persistent questions has to do with the discrimination uh, that women experience, and in particular, the nature of the discrimination, uh, and or, or rather the nature of the outcomes, that is, still some wage gaps, still some opportunity gaps uh, for women, and why that is. So with us to help think this through with us is Corwin Kofi-Charles from the University of Chicago, Edmund A. and Betty L. Bergman, Distinguished Service Professor at the Harris School of Public Policy there. He and his colleagues have written a really interesting paper about sexism in America and in the workplace in particular. Corwin, welcome. Thanks very much for having me, Peter and Yvonne. Happy to be here. Uh, so, Kerwin, let me ask you first, put this in some context for us, because you've done a lot of work on racism before this. And tell us maybe a little bit about the relationship uh, between racism and uh, discrimination against women. Um, do we have a sense about the magnitude of these effects? I mean, things have improved faster for women than they have for minorities? What are we seeing just in That's general? That's a very good question. So I have, as you say... Uh, spent a lot of time over the years studying racial discrimination, racial inequity and in labor market outcomes and the like, attributing some part of it to discrimination, and then finding the portion of it attributable to prejudice, which is racism, the kind of thing you hinted at just now. I have a paper that shows the importance of that phenomenon in explaining how blacks in particular have been doing relative to whites. Okay. What you asked is how sexism relates to racism, what I'm going to call racial animus. Okay. racial distaste uh, in the U.S., how it's evolved and what, it expla- what its explanatory power might be. Both kinds of isms, as best we can measure them, have been declining. Okay. So one can imagine asking people about their negative feelings about something like, hey, how do you feel if your daughter marries a black man? Mm-hmm. Or how do you feel about voting for a president mm-hmm. who was a woman? On and mm-hmm. on. And a general social survey and other surveys have done these kinds of uh, direct subjective evaluations over time, okay. and all of them reveal that both racism and sexism have been declining. Hmm. Okay. Now, now, whereas with respect to racism or racial animus, there's a long-standing view in the social sciences. We have an understanding of how the mechanism might work. A group that's privileged or relatively powerful feels negatively towards another group and curtails activity. Uh, the, the thinking about how sexism might operate is trickier. 
Mm. For one thing, um, it might not be it might not be an aversive thing. So racial animus, the way scholars have written about it, tends to uh, to posit the negative feeling as a feeling of pushing the other group aside, not okay. wanting to interact with the other group. Okay. So this okay. is uh, this is interesting. If I may just uh, ask you, so. Um, so when we do you do you feel that when we want to study actual sexism and how it how it affects people um we can't just use the techniques that work so well for you know for when it came to studying um, racial animus we can't just trans use the same tools and same approaches and same candidate explanations for sexism is that do you think that there's a rather different scenario altogether I think this is very well put it mm. it is possible here's what I would say it is possible that the mechanism is exactly the same, mm. but there's reason to suppose it might not be. That's okay. how I would phrase it. Okay. Right. And so, so a, a society that contains both racism and sexism might, uh, blacks and women in such a society might have worse outcomes for mechanisms that are very different. Okay. And I'll talk you through, if you have time, about what, how those mecha what those mechanisms might be. Before we get to that, maybe you mm -hmm. could help uh, listeners understand uh, the difference between, let's say, discrimination and racism, or when people talk about discrimination based on taste. What, okay. what do those things mean? What do they mean? So economists mean a very particular thing by the word discrimination. Yep. Discrimination is a realization of a market interaction. And so... Person A and person B attempt to do something. Person A and person B are identical in ways that ought to be relevant to the thing. But person A and person B get different wages or different promotion or different apartments, yeah? Yeah. despite their being otherwise identical. That is called discrimination. Okay. And it is differential treatment of otherwise identical people. Now, what might animate that kind of differential treatment? One kind of different one reason might be information. I don't, in fact, know that people are identical. Yeah. Okay. And because I suspect they might not be, I bring to my interaction with them all kinds of extraneous information. Mm -hmm. Well, it turns out that people who look like you tend, on average, to be a certain way. Do you mm -hmm. see? Yeah. Everything mm -hmm. against people like you, but I know that fact, and so information-based sources of differential outcomes are called statistical discrimination. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The other major class of discrimination doesn't have to do with information. I know fully well that the people are equal, equally productive, equally able to pay, equally whatever. But my distaste for one versus another causes me to treat them differently in the interaction. Okay. And so I can discriminate in housing. Mm -hmm. Two people show up and I say, I don't want to rent to people like Yale. Mm -hmm. It's not a matter of whether you can pay or not. Okay. Right. Or I don't want to make people like you CEO people, you woman kind of people, just mm -hmm. because I don't like that. Do you see? Yep. Mm -hmm. That's not about information. That's about taste. That's what we mean. An aversion, a distaste, a sentiment that animates differential treatment. So it's important to distinguish between discrimination, which is the outcome of an interaction, and the isms, racism, sexism, prejudice, which are the things that animate that differential treatment. Right. And it seems to me what's interesting about this paper you've undertaken here with your colleagues, um, Jonathan Gurian and Jessica Pan, yes, uh, is that you're looking at a different mechanism. And maybe yes. this is one of these issues where race and uh, sex differ. And that is norms okay. uh, and how the norms affect the individual themselves. So tell us a little about that story, particularly as how it plays out for women. Got it. If, if 
I may, I just want to go back just a little bit to make sure that we're clear about what I mean by sexism, which I have not yet defined. Okay. Yep. Mm-hmm. Imagine there's a society, there is a sentiment afoot or prevalent in a society uh, that women are, for example, not competent to do certain things, yep. difficult things, mm-hmm. or that their willingness, their engagement in the labor market might hurt the family or hurt their child, or that any number of things that cause some people in the society to feel that women have a particular, specific, distinct place to play in society. Okay? Yeah. One might have a different definition of sexism, which I'm open to discussing, but let's work with that one. Okay? Now, different societies might differ in the degree to which that sentiment is prevalent. And we argue in this paper that to the extent it is, it's present, it might affect people's outcomes through two mechanisms. One we've already discussed, that's called discrimination. Okay. If I feel that women should not be CEO, or women should not be running this thing, or, then encountering a woman applying for a job relative to an equally talented man might cause me to say, no, no I'm not hiring you. You see, right. that would be discrimination. That is a function of the sentiment of sexism prevalent in the society. The other thing, though, the other thing is that if this kind of sentiment is prevalent in a society, there are things potentially that women internalize, men and women internalize, mm-hmm. that don't cause the, the treatment from outsiders to affect her outcome, but cause her herself to eschew certain tasks, to ignore certain paths, mm-hmm. to be nervous about do you see. Yep. And so, if it is the case that I am a young girl having grown up in a place where it is understood, it is understood that no girl studies accounting, what are you doing? Yep. Mm-hmm. Then. Yep. Whatever my facility for accounting, my innate God-given talent to be an accountant, mm-hmm. it would be miraculous if that didn't impact me in some way. Yes, you see. So, mm-hmm. so what you are what you are highlighting here is that uh, it's not just the, that you know women struggle against um, you know perceptions of what they should do or perceptions of what they could actually what they should do or, or what they can do. Uh, they fight. They're not just fighting against these perceptions, but they're also just shaped by their environment. Oh. So just by pure osmosis, so to speak, Perfect. they absorb certain values. Perfectly well said. Perfectly well said. Mm-hmm. I like the osmosis language, right? So mm-hmm. we, we, it, might be, this is, it might be something she does unwillingly, you see? Yep. But she is living in whatever environment we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And it would be miraculous indeed, indeed, if living in an environment where certain points of view are prevalent had no impact on her own, what we would call, the three of us would call their preferences, mm-hmm. the things that shape her, the things that, yeah, it, they become, she doesn't realize these in terms, maybe. I, I just want to tell a quick story about, about this with my own family, um, most of whom are now <laughs> no longer with us, uh, and my mother uh, once telling me um, that... Uh, and my father was there, uh, that uh, my sister had wanted to be a, a lawyer mm-hmm. and that somebody had persuaded her that that was not appropriate for <laughs> for uh, a girl. <sighs> and yeah. the, the interesting thing was it turned out, it's a result of this discussion, that it was my father who had said <laughs> wow. that. <laughs> wow. And my yeah. mother had started this by saying, boy, if I ever find out who that was... <laughs> And uh, yeah. my yeah. father, who was a lawyer, and said, uh, and said, well, it's such a rough business, it's just not appropriate for yeah, girls, exactly. right? So it's and, that, exactly that example of yeah. shaping the norms, right? Shaping the norms and preferences. Let's be clear. That's yeah. a direct influence. Yeah. Now, remember, many of the, influence, influence, the influences, no less powerful, need not be, be that explicit or direct. 
your sister growing up in a world where their lawyers coming over to dinner, your dad is talking about cases, he's hanging out with friends who are lawyers, etc., observes certain stimuli. She is seeing that there are no women who are doing this thing. Yeah. She is getting, not maybe not from him, but from other people, some rumor about some woman who is a lawyer in Rochester. And did you, you see? Yeah. All of mm-hmm. those things affect her and affect her tastes, her choices, and so on, even in adulthood. That's so, the point. So, so, so tell us a little bit about, you know, because your study was, is empirical, and so that really takes these ideas into actual measures or estimates, yes. as we say. So, so what, did you, what did you uncover here, and, and how, much, how much were you surprised, or how much did it confirm what you were thinking you would see? So I, let me say, I, I, was, um, I, I was surprised by a couple of things. I'll give them very quickly. I had a prior that these things might matter because of some work I knew about from people studying the long-term effect within a family of international migration. And so there are people not people who study economic history and other fields have shown that men and women hailing from places with certain cultural practices, work habits and the like, exhibit similar behavior two generations later in the U.S. So mm-hmm. I kind of knew that. Mm-hmm. And it lined up with common sense, but it hadn't been studied in the context within the U.S. that we're talking about. And so what I did empirically was to say, let's begin with adult women. We mm-hmm. look at women who are adult. And we think about their outcomes being affected by two kinds of forces. We just talked about them. One is discrimination. What, how does the market treat her differently today when she tries to do something? And the second is norms. There are two, there are two kinds of norms. One kind of norm is a norm that prevails among adult women where she lives. Yeah. You see, mm-hmm. nobody works there. The adult women, she's an adult and she's subject to these norms. But, I say, the thing about norms is that they might have a long-run effect that linger beyond the place where they're acquired. Mm-hmm. After all, you and I like particular cuisine, or we speak with a certain accent, or all of that. Things that were given to us without us having any say-so in the matter before we were 10, yeah? mm-hmm. right. or certainly before we were 15. And we carry these things with us forever. Mm-hmm. And so the essence of the empirical approach is to say, I will assess first the importance of what we call and define in this paper for the first time as background norms. Norms that the woman was exposed to where she was born. And we're curious about the long-run effect of those associationally on her outcomes today. Mm-hmm. And to my surprise, to our, I think this is the first thing that surprises us, we found a very strong influence of background norms mm-hmm. on labor market and marriage market outcomes. Kerwin, can I just stop you for a second and do Please. just two quick things before we get into the results? And the first is remind people what we're doing. We're talking to Kerwin Charles, who is Distinguished Service Professor at the University of Chicago's School of Public Policy about the issue of sexism and American women and the effects of that. And before we get into the results, I wanted to stick with this norms issue for a second. And, of course, it's odd Yvonne and I talking about norms around women. So uh, let's turn to our producer, uh, the fabulous Michelle here, and ask her, if you don't mind, Michelle, about your experience growing up, uh, which was in a reasonably conservative part of the country, And what norms did you pick up as a young girl, or maybe even a young woman, about what was appropriate uh, for the labor force? What what was your experience? Sure. Well, um, it's hard to say. I mean, yeah, like you said, I haven't been. I was born in Kentucky, by the way, Louisville, Kentucky, and um, haven't been there for a very long time. But I have to say, the norms there in terms of gender roles in homes were much more. 
prominent, like your traditional gender roles. The man is the provider. Okay. I grew up with a mom that did not have a career. She was a stay-at-home mom and mm-hmm. um, knew a lot of people who, who were that way. And the, the man is kind of the provider. And even I'm, I'm 34. I see a lot of women my age in that position right now who didn't leave uh, Kentucky. Back in home. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. I mean, that's all obviously super mm-hmm. anecdotal, but mm-hmm. I would presume that perhaps that's how um, they've been, you know, kind of. Yeah. Ex- that's what they've experienced. So that's what they, they feel is normal to do. Yeah. Uh, that's really interesting. Kerwin, uh, just to make the point on that one. So in Michelle's case there, the important norms may not be about work per se, right, but they're exactly. about about things that affect your willingness or ability to go to work. Yeah? That is correct. That's exactly right. And how each woman feels. Look, our decision to do something is complicated, like pick a partner, or having picked a partner decide how we split work, or go back a level, which kind of partner we find attractive, yep. on and on. Mm-hmm. All those things affect what I see in terms of your realized labor market and marriage market outcomes. Right. Now, right. Michelle tells us she grew up in a place where thus and so was true. And there are things of which she is very well aware. It seems, now that she thinks back, that women had traditional. But there are things of which she's not aware. That we all carry around this legacy of inheritance from where we're from, elements of which we don't quite know. Right. And so Michelle is entering, she meets a partner, and, or potential, and, and what, what makes her like this person rather mm-hmm. than that? Mm-hmm. Well, she doesn't know exactly. They just kind of line up. And maybe some way in which they line up coheres with this thing that she is carrying, too, about traditional division of labor. or I'm stuck in it here. Right, right. My point is that we're all carrying around this kind of baggage with us, men and women both, which affects our choices in the marriage market, in the labor market, etc. So okay. like free therapy. Yes, this is free therapy for, for <laughs> Thanks, Michelle. Yeah. And before we get ahead, let me just say just a word about what you're going to talk about next, which is a study, and then Yvonne's got a point here too. And what's clever about this for us academics is that what Kerwin's going to do is exploit something interesting uh, in the U.S., and that is that people move around. And so people are going to grow grow up in one place, and presumably by the time they move, they've already got the attitudes of that place and then they're going to move to someplace else, and sometimes with a different set of attitudes uh, and different set of norms. And that's going to be what's interesting about the story here. So, Yvonne, you were going to ask a question. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, I, I just want to kind of uh, take it to the next stage in some sense. Um, so, you know, imagine I'm, a, I'm, a, I, I'm, imagine I'm someone who really cares about uh, putting, uh, uh, making sure that women are at, at the same level as men. Mm-hmm. Um, should shouldn't your study be a, be a little bit uh, something that I don't didn't want to hear because it speaks to this argument that well the reason why women are not uh, pursuing um, you know aggressive careers the reason why they're not being paid so much and the reason why they are staying at home and uh, the reason why they are having part time job is that because they want to have that ah that's a good that's a good so and you yeah and and you. When you're saying, you know, they, where they hail from has a strong predictive power in terms of what kind of norms they have, wouldn't they then say, well, you know, they are like this and they, that's what yeah. they want. And mm-hmm. yes. who are we to argue with that? Uh, that's a very good question. So I will say two things. I will say first um, that I can imagine someone making an argument, but let me give some things against it. Thing one is that whereas I say, that norms matter, and I show that they do, 
norms, background norms, are smaller in terms of their predictive power right. than the prevalence and nature of sexism where she lives today. Right, right. That's point one. Point yeah. two, point two, is that the influence of sexism where she lives today, remember we're always linking sexism to two mechanisms, mm. that the powerful influence of sexism where she lives today on labor market outcomes, wages, employment, and the like, seems to operate through discrimination, mm-hmm. not through norms. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And yeah. so this is an important point. And so it is not that we're saying, no, we've demonstrated, I think, that norms are important. Yeah. But we go through a lot of using the migration analysis earlier reference. I don't know if you guys want me to discuss that at greater length. Mm. But the basic intuition is, the intuition is, look, for background norms, let me observe men and women born in Kentucky, both living in New, in New York or Philadelphia, and I'm going to compare that pair, the man-female pair from Kentucky, to men and women from Ohio living in New York. Yes? Yes. And I observe what the difference in outcomes is uh, in, in the same labor market, this is an important point, between these two pairs of men and women. Yes? Okay. And we find that the being from a more sexist place is associated with worse labor market and sort of more attachment to home and family than is true for people from less sexist places. That's result one. Result two is that the place where you live matters hugely. That comparing one market to another for people who've already moved, we find that the more sexist the place today the bigger the woman's labor market disadvantage. Right. And in fact, it's much larger than the background sexism effect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One thing we do that I particularly like in this paper is we say, you know what? Look, at, imagine, remember I said we have this measure of sexism in a state or a region. But that's, that comes from many, many individual level reports of sexist sentiment about, along the lines I described at the beginning of our conversation. What I can do is to separate those beliefs in a given place by, for men and women. So in Pennsylvania, I know how sexist men and women are in that place. Okay? Right. It turns out it's very correlated, but not perfectly so. Okay? And it turns out that in a horse race, so look at, look at a given city and run a horse race between men's sexist belief in the place and women's sexist belief in the place and ask which of those better predicts labor market outcomes. Do you see? Okay. What we find is that labor market outcomes load exclusively onto the sexism of men in the market. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Only the sexism of men. Mm-hmm. So that's the discrimination. Right? Women, and women mm-hmm. can have very sexist beliefs, let's be clear, don't matter at all mm-hmm. for the labor market gap we observe. Right. Right. By, contrast, by contrast, when we observe marriage market outcomes, the age of first marriage when she has her first child and the number she has are the two outcomes on which we focus, there, men's sexist beliefs don't matter whatsoever. Hmm. And the contrast between those two sets of results was to us absolutely stunning. Mm-hmm. Okay? Yeah. And so, we kick the tires every kind of way yeah, one yeah. could, and I'm not getting into econometric details, but that's the essence of what we find when we do the gender contrast. Yeah, so, so this was really great that you took the time to explain this, because... because um, at first glance, one could think that you know there's no you know the the role for policies to to diminish sexism is perhaps questionable because it's all about what people want and their preferences. Mm-hmm. But actually, that is not the case. It actually reinforces the importance of policies because you know just uh, just correlating with the with the uh, with the experience of our of our producer that mm-hmm. you know her friends who remain there you know. Mm-hmm. 
did not have a career and she who left here and went and, and moved to this amazing state and uh, this fantastic city <laughs> has fabulous a, job has fabulous a thriving job. career mm-hmm. at, at Wharton Radio so so this really actually the, the difference in the importance of these two types of um, you know the, the background and the actual current uh, experience of sexism really reinforces how, mm. how important policies are. Yeah. That's perfectly said, Ivan. Yep. I, I will go, by the way, this thing I'm about to say is not in my paper. Mm-hmm. Okay? It's not in my paper. My co-author is, what are you saying? We didn't, fine. Mm-hmm. We're talking. So we demonstrated that the thing someone is around and is exposed to has an effect potentially on her behavior, independent of people externally blocking her path. Right. And so I've wondered for many years about the consequence of role modeling. Let's go back to your sister, Peter. Okay? Let us imagine that wherever you grew up, your father's law firm decided, you know what we're going to do? We're going to make it a point to ensure that every few years at our major legal conference here in town, the keynote speaker is a woman. Let's suppose they've done that. Mm-hmm. The influence of that on your sister would have been gargantuan. You see what I mean? Mm-hmm. That there are their yep. policies, their choices that can be currently made that affect two things. Affect two things. <laughs> it affects the woman who is 25 and 35 making the decision in the moment, right. and it affects the 15-year-old sister of Peter's. Mm-hmm. You see, mm-hmm. who's trying to decide what to do because what she sees today will be her background. Mm-hmm. Do you see what I mean? Right. Mm. So, Corinne, let me ask you about the uh, the response to to your paper because uh, it gets at some quite fundamental issues as we're starting to see. And Yvonne's point before that uh, this idea of norms and the background experience is, on the one hand, if you're a sociologist, you would say this is false consciousness, uh, the expression yeah, right. for that. Um, but if you're a modern politician, you would say, you know, this is uh, our culture, our our regional culture, and that that is something that should be valued. Uh, so I guess maybe the good news for the false conscious set is that norms don't come out being all that important, particularly in the labor market context. Correct. Um, Correct. Although it is important in others. What kind of reaction have you gotten to this potentially political hot potato, or have people not figured out that it's a politically hot potato yet. I think people are sifting through their points of view about it. Most of my interaction on the paper has been through the presentation circuit. So I've, you know, given the paper at academic conferences all over the country and uh, or at, I mean, in seminars, I mean, around the country. Yep. Argues with my colleagues about what this means. Look, how, so here are some things we didn't talk about. Like, how is it that people, people don't randomly move places, do they? Right. Like, mm-hmm. there's a reason that the incredibly talented Michelle ended up in Pennsylvania. Yes. Maybe she'll, you see. And so when you tell me it's something about uh, the Pennsylvania norm, no, no, no. It's that Michelle wanted to go to, you see, that yeah. kind of thing. Right, right. We, we right. think very hard about that kind of problem, let, let me just, let me say. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the issue that this is not just a, some random experiments but people yeah. are thrown across the country for, yeah. for right. the benefit of a researcher right. here. Right. Yeah. So we, we, you know, we try to, we do things to address that, and I think, in, to us, a relatively convincing way. But, right. So most people's questions have surrounded that and, and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I've, I, I've been struck by uh, giving talks or something and then getting an email or from a woman who says, you know, I am, I don't know, Professor Dustin so on. Now that I thought about it, I, I, I'm just reflecting on how much where I grew up affects the choices I made, oh, mm-hmm. even now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And mm-hmm. um, I've heard that from lots and lots of women. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's been so far. people's 
emphasis on, and this, the, the resonance of the the background norm idea with mm-hmm. women in particular has been striking. I think uh, possibly different channels on Sirius uh, would give you a quite a different reaction <laughs> yeah, yeah, <I> <laughs> to this. Yeah. Uh, but I think uh, I think partly people probably haven't quite figured out um, what this is revealing. Uh, yeah, and you might I, get. A... I think there's some things that are incontrovertible. Yeah. yeah like yeah. one is that the thing that we never got to at the very beginning was look what prompted you to think about this in the first instance. Yeah. And what prompted me to think about this in the first instance is that whereas uh, women, as you said at the beginning, have converged closer to men in terms of wages and employment, there, on average, there remains tremendous variation across space in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And so the male gender gap, the, the gender gap, is not at all constant across states. Right. Moreover, right. moreover, it's not explicable by what we would consider in our UI both the standard controls. Let me control for observed education. Mm-hmm. Let me control for the industrial or occupational distribution in the market. You see? that The differences I just described are what you and I would call residual differences. After you've taken out those standard things, these differences persist. Mm-hmm. What accounts for them? Mm-hmm. What accounts for them? Yeah. And mm-hmm. so this paper is an attempt to say, I don't know that this is the thing. It might be a small thing. I'm convinced it is not a small thing. Mm-hmm. But let's explore the potential importance of this thing. Yep. Yep. Uh, really interesting stuff, Kerwin. We should probably let you go now. Thanks very much for being with us. Yeah, Absolutely thank you, Kerwin. This was, this was awesome. Thank you very much. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.